Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy is Professor of History at Exeter University here in the UK and we're going to be talking to Jeremy today about two of his most recent books on a related theme. Firstly, Geographies of an, of an Imperial Power, The British World 1688-1815, to published by Indiana University Press in 2018, and secondly, Imperial Legacies, The British Empire Around the World published by Encounter Books earlier this year, 2019. Jeremy, congratulations on these books and welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in empire as, as a way to begin this conversation? Yes. Um, I've always thought that uh, if one's looking at national history, one should try and consider aspects of it that are distinctive on the world scale. And obviously, to my mind, the key distinctiveness on the part of Britain is its particular constitutional and political development, um, its economic development in the shape of the Industrial Revolution, and its imperial development in the sense that uh, rule by Britain was a experience, often a formative experience for much of the world. And I've tried to probe aspects of that in several, not all of my books. And the one you're referring to, The Geographies of an Imperial Power, which looks at the period 1688 to 1815, draws on those themes, but also draws, as does my work on maps, on my fascination with geography. I nearly did geography at university instead of history. In fact, I think it's fair to say I would definitely have done geography had the subject not at that stage at Cambridge been going through a very mathematical stage, uh, which I wasn't interested in. Um, And... I've always uh, been very taken by the French approach to history, in which tries to draw in the geographical dimension, the role of the pays. And I've always thought that one of the sad aspects of British history is how poor historians are at geography. In Britain, historical geography is a subject that is given to geographers, not historians, and geographers interrogate it uh, in terms of the uh, intellectual um, sort of uh, energy is uh, dynamic of their subject and don't really look at it in the historical sense. One of the things I've tried to do in a number of my works, including my work on geopolitics, is to recover historical geography, not in the sense of driving the geographers away, that would be absurd, but recover the way of looking at it from a historical viewpoint. So in the book you're talking about, Geographies of an Imperial Power, I both look at the geography of that period and look at what it can tell us as historians, and in doing so, seek to give a different view to that of historical geographers. Now, you you write um, at the beginning of this book about this effort to rescue historical geography uh, back for historians, and one of the, I suppose, one of the most important aspects of that is to think about the history of cartography, the history of mapping. So how do maps, how how does the formation or thinking about maps uh, reflect the way you develop themes and geographies of an imperial power? Well, maps um, capture the spatial um, understanding that individuals and societies have. Now, most maps, of course, are not uh, are not 
transformed into paper or other forms that last. In other words, most mapping is mental mapping, and that is still extraordinarily important. I mean, you're a historian of religion. Um, much of the classic Augustinian account, which is so influential in uh, in history, uh, the relationship between the you know the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, much of that relates to notions of spatiality, and. Uh, that's classic mental mapping. I mean, you can see it again in John Bunyan, though Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, they actually offer a physical map for you to also understand that spiritual journey. Uh, I, on the whole, tend to be more focused on the secular approach to mapping, and I'm very interested in how differing accounts uh, give one in a sense of um, the understanding offered to contemporaries about uh, geography and what their understanding of geography told them about the broader world. Now, how isolated were these islands in the period in which this book begins around the Glorious Revolution? You talk about um, the growth of the East India Company, the formation of Irish Catholic colleges in the continent and so on. What happens as we move through into the 18th century about the, 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 the relationships, that the complex and strong relationships that do exist between these islands and the areas around them? Well, first of all, I don't think the British were isolated in any sense in 1688. Uh, it's very difficult to compare these things across the generations. But I think actually uh, for those people who could read, which is because it's a minority of the population, uh, there was a very strong sense of the outer world. If you picked up an early newspaper in the 1690s, much of its news would be about abroad. And of course, the key aspects of the economy, things like um, uh, cloth exports, fishing, all of those related to broader economic currents. But in the 18th century as a whole, uh, Britain becomes the world's leading imperial power, and empire becomes extraordinarily important in our understanding of the geography and the geographical imagination. And it's certainly not um, a, a sort of precursor of the modern Europe. So, for example, um, cities such as um, Sapphire on Athens or Belgrade uh, were for most of the century in the case of Belgrade and for all of the century in the other in the terms of the other ones um, part of the Ottoman Empire they were as it were non-European and European or Western culture or whatever term you wish to use it was more present in places like New York uh, or Halifax Nova Scotia or for example uh, New Orleans or Lima in Peru so I think that one had a broader engagement with the world. I mean, if you're looking at emigration out of the British Isles in the 18th century, most emigration was to North America. It wasn't to continental Europe. Uh, so I think that you look, you're looking, if you wish to use the term imperial, I don't think that would necessarily be a wrong term, but if one needs to remember that in the 19th century, emigration to the United States continues to be very important. So I think one could actually say that Britain is a global power and a global trading force, um, uh, irrespective of whether the areas one's talking about are under the formal uh, rule of empire or not. Now, you, you describe in geographies of an imperial power a, a nation-state forming and finding its place in the world. What benefits are there for its population at home in terms of fashion, taste, culture, garden design, comedy even you write about? How does it impact uh, people who live here? Well, as far as people who lived in the British Isles are concerned, there is no doubt at all that the success, and it was ultimately a hard-edged military success, in repelling a series of invasion attempts 
principally by France, though Spain also played a role, and often, though not always, on behalf of Jacobites. And of course, if one moves into the 1790s and 1800s on behalf of the revolutionary ideology of France and then Napoleon, all of these are crucial to British political culture. I mean, you know, you're talking about geography. We've recently had the most bizarre piece uh, uh, I've written about it and against it by the professor at uh, Oxford, Daniel Dawling, who said that he thought it would, be, it would have been a good idea if Britain had lost World War II because it then would have had uh, understood the experience of what it was like to be ruled. I mean, this is a deeply disturbing, as well as being a completely unpatriotic viewpoint, but this is a distinct, distinctly disturbing viewpoint because it implies that all values are of equal force, so that therefore it's of equally uh, an equal value to have, uh, or lack of value, to have been ruled by Britain and, as it were, by Nazi Germany. Now, obviously, that's absurd, and one, one hopes that he wasn't writing that when he was fully in command of his senses. But the, 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 that attitude, I think, is really too, uh, too strong in Britain, this sort of trashing of our nation's history. The reality and practicality is that uh, although you know, there are things we can clearly disagree with from the point of view and perspective of modern-day values, in terms of um, a European society of the 18th century, um, Britain was a limited, um, a limited monarchy, a parliamentary government, uh, had a strong sense of the rule of law, um, and had a relatively high degree of religious and intellectual freedom and liberty of thought and expression. And those were all important, and they helped to give us the country we have today. And to that extent, I mean, I think that when one's writing about the past, one is writing about it in its own terms, and I think that's part of the professionalism of being a historian to do that. But inevitably, one was taking part in a discussion about how uh, we look at the background to where we are at the present day, and that might be implicit or explicit. Um, I think that there are a number of occasions in my book um, where I'm trying to talk about the relevance for understanding the 18th century to rethinking how the intellectual subject of geography is done at the present day, because much of that subject is a sort of tendentious form of left-wing sort of, um, sort of, as it were, you know, very actually intellectually fairly bogus subject at the present moment, which is disappointing because there are, you know, there is a, there are real things out there. It's not just a question of the sort of postmodern games. You know, coal does come from certain areas and not from other areas. Place A is closer to place B than place C. It's not just a question of discourses of, you know, race or gender or sexuality or whatever. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do is to look at geography in the 18th century context as a real series of relationships, as well as considering contemporary perception of them. I suppose one of the things that makes imperial history difficult or controversial is its relationship with the slave trade. That's something else you write about in this book as well. So much of what you write about has an ethical dimension to it, Jeremy. So how, how do we as historians, or how should we as historians think about writing about the history of the slave trade or slavery through the period that this book discusses? Well, that's good. I'll give you a brief answer to that, but maybe we can have a discussion on, you know, I have written several books on slavery and slave trade. Maybe you could also have a separate discussion on them. But very, very briefly, um, slave trade today would be regarded quite rightly as absolutely abhorrent. And where we see slavery in the present day, and we do see slavery in 
in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, Mauritania, for example, or Sudan, or we see state slavery in places like North Korea, uh, most people today would regard these as totally abhorrent. When one's looking at the 18th century, particularly the early 18th century, by the late 18th century, there is a quite important discussion uh, of hostility to the slave trade, which really gets going strongly from the uh, mid-1780s. Prior to that, there's always the danger of being ahistorical. Uh, and slavery is horrible, yes. Uh, the uh, understanding of it in contemporary terms doesn't really take us very far if you say that. I mean, what one really look, needs to look at is the extent to which around the world as a whole, there are a series of coercive labor regimes. Um, slavery is one of them, serfdom, indented labor, convict labor are others. Uh, and possibly one needs to actually impact the discussion of slavery in terms of a broader-based understanding of coercive uh, labor systems and the labor movements accompanying that. Um, so I would try and take it in that direction. As far specifically as the discussion about Britain is concerned, uh, there is a problem that people of obstinate, again, people that tend to hate the country, have abstracted slavery and sort of presented it as an original sin of British greatness. Well, this is absurd. I mean, for example, many societies in the world in the 17th and 18th century practiced slavery in the slave trade, so that's point one. Uh, point two, if you're looking for British economic development, I would put an, act, an emphasis more on coal or black gold of that form rather than sugar or white gold of that form. Um, so I think one needs to have a much more subtle understanding. But of course, those people taking part in the political debate about this are not interested in subtlety. They're, they're trying to make politicized for, uh, arguments, and many of them. And I think one needs to be absolutely clear about this. Many people who talk about decolonizing the syllabus are actually engaged in power grabs for themselves. It's a way in which people their own career, advance their own importance, develop their sense of self-importance. And I think that is deeply disturbing. I mean, 18th century satirists like Swift or Pope would have had a field day with the modern decolonization uh, movement. Well, if we can go back to the theme of religion, Jeremy, uh, given that lots of our listeners are interested in that, can you help us think about Linda Cauley's thesis that Britishness is driven by a common religious identity, a, a supranational Protestant identity sustained by achievements in, in, in war and economy. Is that, is that a thesis that, having thought about and tested, you're willing to support? Well, I think Britain's is a major book, and of course it went through a second edition, and it still is uh, well worth reading. There are obviously other points you could bring out of it. I mean, you know, there is the argument, I'm not the only person to have brought this out, there is the argument that possibly Linda underplays the tensions within Protestantism, particularly between the established church and nonconformity in England. And I think that that is certainly the case in some periods, for example, late 17-teens or 1730s. Um, but I think the substance of her case is well founded, that there was a powerful ideological component, that it's not simply a matter of functionalism, of the extent or success of Britain as an, as an economy or Britain as a military system. There is an ideology there, and that ideology, which is both a positive ideology in the sense of uh, praising aspects about the British system and seeing those aspects as ones that one wanted to see in one's colonies, 
but also a negative ideology in the sense of opposed to Catholicism and autocracy. I think those are both uh, both the case. And in fact, it helps to give a very positive strength to Britishness in this period. And it means that Britishness, in a way, is able to detach itself from the weakness of individual monarchs or the deficiencies of individual monarchs. And I think that is an important aspect of Britain as a freer society than many of the societies in continental Europe, where although they may have the theory of the nation state in practical terms, it was, it was really a, a polity driven by a dynastic identity. And indeed, ironically, uh, that is what goes wrong with France, because in France, um, what you end up with is Napoleon I, uh, the great Napoleon, as, as, as it were, as opposed to Napoleon III later on. And Napoleon is very much, despite all the froth, a dynast and, a, and um, somebody who ultimately there is no real uh, national identity behind. I mean, what is very interesting is the speed with which the Napoleonic system collapses in 1814 and 1815, and with Napoleon III, you could say, in 1870. In other words, leaving aside military deficiencies, the idea that you would go on fighting on for a sense of identity as represented by that ruling house isn't really very strong. Whereas I was very struck years ago, I was reading uh, manuscripts produced by uh, within Britain discussing how to fight on in the event of French troops landing during the Napoleonic period. Uh, and in many respects, there's a very great similarity with the um, looking at how people would have responded to Operation Sea Lion, the German plans in 1940. There is a sense of nationhood, um, irrespective of uh, what happens to an individual monarch. Hmm. Now, the second book we're going to talk about today is Imperial Legacies of British Empire Around the World, just published by Encounter Books 2019. What's the relationship between these two titles, Geographies of Imperial Power? and then Imperial Legacies, which has followed it? Well, I try and write, I mean, you know, people often make fun of me because I write a lot of books, though if they want to do that, they should take that up with the academic readers who work for the publishers. But I try and write each of my books both to be self-standing, that you don't need to read any other book to read this book, which means that occasionally one has to repeat some of one's arguments. But I also try and write them as part of a broader architecture. And in the case of imperial legacies, what I'm trying to do is to critique the standard approach in writing about empire, just as in the uh, other book, I'm trying to critique the standard approach to, uh, of historical geography. So to that extent, they're part of an intellectual agenda in which I am trying, and let's face it, there are not very many within the academy, within academic life, there are not very many conservative historians. I am trying to offer a different account to the dominant theses, which I see as very much uh, imbued with left-wing ideology. Well, I think the point about empire is that there is a tendency, as indeed with many other situations, slavery, even war, to think about them as if they're historicized and part of particular pathologies or, or conduct patterns in human activity. What I would argue is that they are not, um, as it were, ended, dated, only determined by particular historical images and states, 
but that, that you can see them across history. So in case of slavery, I would argue you've got slavery today and state slavery in countries like North Korea, for example. Um, in the case of empire, clearly you do not in general, certainly in the West, see empire in the form of, you know, men in helmets going out um, trying to conquer bits of Africa. But empire is as much part of the human condition at the present moment if you live in countries, if you're a Siberian living in Russia, if you're a Tibetan or Sinkian li um, living in China, or indeed you could argue that there are imperial tendencies within um, what we might not see as empires. The fact that something has a democratic framework, a democratic franchise, we can think of modern India, does not mean that, India, that you do not experience it as empire if you're a Muslim living in Pakistan, if you're a Christian um, or, or non-Hindu uh, non living in northeast India, um, if you're a, a Sikh separatist living in the Punjab. So the point is that empire itself, which we tend to see as an uh, unpleasant pathology of the human condition, one could argue is much more deeply rooted in the way in which we conduct ourselves. Now, the subtitle of your book is The British Empire Around the World, but the title is about legacies thereof. What are the legacies of the British Empire around the world? Well, what I wanted to do, first of all, the British Empire was a varied situation, meant very different things at different periods, um, and its legacies are very contrasting. Um, you know, on the one hand, you could look at uh, benign governmental systems such as Canada or New Zealand or Singapore. Uh, on the other hand, you could look at desperate failures, although those failures often see the recreation of pre-British uh, animosities, as in, for example, Sudan or Nigeria. Um, but what I would argue is that the legacies are both uh, what, ha what happened and how it's perceived uh, in the areas that uh, experienced uh, uh, empire, but also in Britain itself. And one of the interesting things is in both areas, um, these are controverted. And one of the things I was trying to do in my book, Imperial Legacies, is to show how the experience of empire um, is not uniform. It is contested in places like I discussed in detail, the United States, India, uh, China, which for a period was part of the informal British Empire, uh, and indeed in Britain itself. And as we know, in Britain, we've, we've had Mr. Corbyn announce that uh, children should be taught, I, I think in the case of Mr. Corbyn, it's fairer to say indoctrinated, um, uh, into the supposed evils of the British Empire, uh, which is rather ironic if you see demonstrators in Hong Kong um, sort of waving the Union Jack and, and so on. I, I think Mr. Corbyn lives in the sort of time warp or ideological fix in which he cannot see that an, an experience can be both good and bad and for and be perceived in different ways. And in a sense, empire is therefore part of the condition, the experience of empire is part of the condition of what we have today. It also encapsulates the problems of understanding the past. And one of the difficulties when we look back at the British Empire whether we're in Britain or abroad, is it tends to be seen in a very shallow, monodimensional fashion, usually as an evil 
force that replaced sort of free living people grouped together in some pleasant benign state, which of course is rubbish. I mean, you know, um, in many places, uh, the British Empire was the latest in the sequence of imperial powers. Uh, one can think of northern India, where it essentially replaced the Mughals, who had successfully invaded India um, from um, Central Asia, modern Afghanistan, and uh, the the Stans in 1526. So the idea that the British in some way are pathologically, uniquely evil is rubbish. The idea that the British uh, were uniquely or um, particularly racist is rubbish. But a whole series of myths uh, is used for uh, to advance political strategies, both in Britain and in former uh, imperialised states. Thinking about the reception of the book, Jeremy, do you think that nuance comes through in the way reviewers have approached it? Well, there was a particularly stupid review in The Guardian, but in a way that made one very pleased. I mean, I, I wrote a book on the, uh, sorry, an essay on the pleasures and pitfalls of being reviewed. And um, in a sense, the pleasure often of being reviewed is when you rattle the cages of people you think of as rather foolish. Is, is imperial thinking inevitable, Jeremy? That's a very good question. Of course, it depends what one means by imperial thinking. I, I, I certainly, um, looking at modern, um, modern discussion of geopolitics, which is one of my subjects, and looking at, for example, the consideration of the extension of Chinese power and influence, and looking at discussions about um, the, the, you know, President Macron's plans for the European Union, um, which are very different, of course, to the Chinese. But what one has got there is are aspects of what you might call imperial power. In other words, these are international um, ideas which are, in effect, um, sort of not not <laughs> not constrained um, by what one might call the limitations of considering those who don't appreciate your point of view. Hmm. You mentioned Jeremy Corbyn. And that leads us obviously to thinking about the general election and the issue of Brexit that swirls around it. Is Brexit an embrace of or a rejection of imperial aspiration? Well, that's again a good question. I mean, there's been some very silly work. Uh, I mean, there was a particularly stupid book I had to uh, to read arguing that Brexit was an expression of imperial nostalgia. When, of course, the um, almost one of the major uh, protagonists of Britain remaining in the European Union and taking an active role is Tony Blair, who was, if anything, the the great figure for um, imperial activity east of Suez. Now, I would say, if you wish to characterise it negatively, and people are entitled to be both negative and positive, I would see Brexit much more sits in a little England pattern. I'm not, uh, um, you know, I'm not in any way commenting there upon the situation in Scotland, uh, Wales or Northern Ireland. But I think there is a sort of little Englander approach, I think. Um, uh, and I would say that the, the uh, attempt to characterise it as um, late imperial or imperial nostalgia is part of the polemic of uh, of uh, is part of the polemic of Brexit and doesn't really help us very much understand the situation. Hmm. Much to consider, and you unpack this and much more in Imperial Legacies of British Empire Around the World, just published by Encounter Books. Jeremy Black, thank you very much.